This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me your questions or comments to mormonawakenings at gmail or you can find me at Facebook at either Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Welcome back. I want to thank everyone for listening. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or leave a review at iTunes or mormondiscussionspodcast.org. I love the emails. I'm grateful for them. Keep them coming. We have a treat this week. Instead of me just blathering and monologuing like I normally do, I had a chance to sit down with Bill Reel, who started Mormon Discussion Podcast several years ago. His episode numbers now run to the hundreds, so he's thought about Mormonism, religion, life a lot over the years. We sat down this past week and had a conversation about Fowler, the individual's need for validation, the role of the institution in all of this. I learned a lot from Bill. One of the things that I learned is that I'm not a very good interviewer, so I hope you'll bear with me. But I think the conversation ended up being interesting. Just a heads up, my recording equipment stopped right in the middle of the conversation for about 10 minutes, and a hypothetical posed by Bill was lost. And this hypothetical involved a young gay teenager inside the church who took his life. It was a hypothetical, even though we've seen that tragically in our community. And Bill posing this hypothetical was lost. We refer to this hypothetical later in the conversation, and I think you'll be able to understand it now that you know what the hypothetical was. But I just want to make you aware of it. Now on to my conversation with Bill Reel. Hi, Bill. Thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate you taking the time. I know there's a couple-hour gap between the East Coast and St. George, Utah. So thanks for taking the time. Yeah. I want to just start off by talking about Fowler. Um, you, you know, we, we talk a lot, or you talk a lot about stages of faith, um, and you rely a lot, a lot on the Fowlers of the world. And um, I, I agree with that paradigm, but one of, one of the things I think that troubles me about the paradigm is it seems to... I don't want to say glorify, but it seems to emphasize this necessary walk through a period of great anger. Um, and I'm not so sure we need to be angry about things in order to transition to using Fowler's language to to more advanced stages or, or more, I don't know if advanced is the right word, but more mature or more further along the, the chronological timeline stages. And so I want to open it with that. Do you you think that this stage of being kind of angry is, A, am I depicting it correctly, A, and then B, is this something, is this an unavoidable stage or transition as we move farther along the timeline? Right. So I, I don't think it's a necessary thing to happen uh, and and what I, when I say that, though, I want to caveat that with something has to be different in that person's life, in their experience, that keeps that, uh, that wall from, from someone hitting that wall, from someone having that dark night of the soul, from someone having what they would describe as a faith crisis. There has to be something different in place. So if we just... 
validate for a moment that some people don't go through that that dark night of the soul. And let's just take that group of people and just set them off to the side for just a moment. Mm. And recognize that for those who do go through the dark night of the soul, there's something going on in their experience and in their paradigm. And I'll try to put words to it. When, when you live in, and, and I'll use the religious background because we're obviously talking about religion generally, even though this is just the human experience. Yeah. When someone is in a religious paradigm and that religious paradigm requires a lot of them, it tells them certain stories and it imposes that those stories are taken literally when it sets high expectations for somebody, when it adds guilt or shame, when those expectations are not met, when one fuses that religious paradigm with their identity. Like it's not just I'm a Methodist. It's not I'm just a Baptist. And if I leave Methodism or if I leave the Baptist church, I can just go to another church and nobody really cares. But when it's a faith like Mormonism, and if one grows up in a rigid household, if one grows up in a rigid ward, if one doesn't, if one is not given the tools and resources to have perceived flexibility to believe differently, and, and if that rigidity places really hard expectations on somebody, when one wakes up to what Fowler calls stage four, where one realizes like, oh my goodness, this stuff doesn't fit together the way everybody told me it had to. Mm. And when that chaos begins, as that person reaches out to their, to their loved ones, as that person reaches out to members of their ward, and, and again, this isn't just unique to Mormonism. We could, we could name a thousand other places in the world this happens, but it's these same mechanisms. If someone reaches out to somebody who they expect to be kind and to listen and to love and to be helpful. And what they find is defensiveness and walls being built and moats being built around one sacred cows that these conversations can't even occur to the point where this individual feels like everybody's pointing at them and saying they're broken when at the same time they're looking out at the world and saying, no, like, this is real. I read something. I learned something. I grew into something. And nobody's giving me the validation that I need to, to have a healthy transition in this stage. Then I think it's inevitable that those folks are going to hit that wall. And they're going to have an experience that they would call a faith crisis that somebody else in that exact same moment who has the tools and resources to get through that would call growth, would call faith a faith transition, would call um, faith, uh, I'm trying to think of another word that would be a softer, a softer word. It wouldn't have this like breakage to it. But unfortunately, within Mormonism, within other high demand fundamentalist religions, there is a large segment of membership, of congregations, of loved ones, of leaders who, when somebody goes through this, and let's be honest, the institution does this too. Rarely does the institution, when anybody distances themselves from Mormonism, rarely 
ever, and if ever, and, and maybe I can point to Elder Uchtdorf as one exception in one talk, mm. rarely ever does the institution say, like, this isn't your fault. This is partly on us. And everywhere in Mormonism, the message is, if you distance yourself from Mormonism, you're broken. There's something wrong. You need to read more, pray more. You did this. This is your fault. Somehow you stepped away. And nobody stands up and says, yeah, this is partly our fault. This is, this is on us as an institution. This is on us as a culture for not giving you better tools and resources, for not talking about growth, for, for making faith development look like apostasy. And, and I would say that when someone doesn't have the tools and resources, it's inevitable that they're going to have a faith crisis. They're going to have a dark night of the soul and, and darn any of us for adding any shame and guilt to that happening for the reasons that it happens. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you on that, on the, particularly on the last part to darn any of us for, for contributing to any guilt or shame. I mean, I, I don't think that's anybody's, uh, prerogative. Certainly no one has the right to do that regardless of their stance. And I, I agree, um, with, with much of what you said. There's a couple things, I, I, and agree or disagree is a little too binary for me. It's not like I disagree. I mean, I, I think I agree with everything you said. But here's a couple observations that came up. And thank you for your for yeah. your well thought out response, by the way. If anyone's no problem. spent a lot of time thinking about this, it's you. But but um, whenever I hear words like, um, you know, the church has imposed upon. Or the church needs to validate or admit. I, I have, to, on the one hand, I I get it. I think what you're saying is, look, the the church sort of, you know, has thought up this program, sort of massaged this narrative, um, given us a bunch, given a set of rules and policies, and it has its objectives for its members, almost like almost like a corporation does for its workers and and the the objectives of the institution are not always aligned with what's best for the for the workers in the case of the corporation or the members i mean that that's kind of an odd phenomenon but you see that in all institutions and and oddly enough you see that in churches where sometimes the church's objectives seem almost divorced from what's good for the members i mean that that seems that sounds really terrible to say but I think that that's I think that that's right. So so on the one hand, I agree with that. You know, I, I get and I empathize with that view that the church is imposing or the church is not validating or you know re- requiring things or not admitting things. On the other hand, um, it seems like it seems like imposition is something that the individual allows to happen or. A need for validation is something that the individual craves, and it's independent of the institution. Does that make sense? And so, if you so if you're someone who so if you come into this world, um, and I think we all come in with predispositions, with particular talents, particular um, weaknesses, certainly certainly uh, predispositions to certain moods or. Uh, predispositions to react a certain way. If you come into this world as someone who is easily imposed upon, 
it almost, my, my own view at this point in my life is it doesn't matter where you're born. You're going to have the experiences in life that are going to make you um, deal with that proclivity. And, and you're going to have to, uh, you know, g- grow in some way. Because that's something that you just got, you know, you can't, you know, we can't long term, certainly not for the eternities, be a being that is subject to being imposed upon by others. Right? I mean, we have to, I think it's just one of the fundamental things all people need to learn in this life and, right, it's and for the eternities. It's just, you gotta, you've gotta, you've gotta learn to not be someone who's imposed on. And, and we see people inside the church who almost, who have similar experiences uh, to people who are very hurt and offended, but they're able to laugh about it or it just doesn't affect them. And I, I think you referred to someone who doesn't have the tools or resources, and maybe it's a tools and resources thing. I, I think pr- probably it is. On the other hand, I think there are some people that are more, um, are more uh, easily imposed upon and need – need more validation. And this sounds pejorative and, and, and pedantic and condescending on so many levels for anyone to say that. And I, and I don't mean it that way. I just, I'm just trying to recognize the fact that we all have this set of predispositions, this set of inclinations. Um, we, we react certain, certain ways to certain things. That's all different for everybody. And, and I think there is, there, there is a group well, there are individuals that are more easily imposed upon than others that that demand more validation than, than others and and want some sort of admission from the church of of what is admittedly you know mistakes um, you know bad policy you know self interested policies at, at the expense of members i mean I, I agree with all that sort of stuff, and I guess where i 'm coming from is uh, to, to get to the end of the tunnel, so to speak, you know, to, to over to overcome or to or to find peace, you know, I guess expecting the church to stop imposing or expecting the church to suddenly start validating or to admit things. I mean, it just it will never happen. And and even if it did, that's not the point, anyways, for the individual. The individual needs to whatever whatever their Whatever they're supposed to be learning in this life needs to address those things themselves. So are we so are we talking circles around each other? Are we saying the same thing with different words, or are we kind of coming from different places? I, I don't know. Sometimes I think there is a tension between the two views. Um, but but yeah, but, so, but sometimes you know I, I'm not sure we're talking across purposes. No 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 I I think I think we're going round and round an issue and looking at it from different angles. I I would agree with you a hundred percent in that if you would have asked me five years ago, I would have said that if enough people express their hurt, if enough people raise their hand and say, there's a problem here that the LDS church or any, any high demand fundamentalist religion for that matter. Yeah would would improve would say like oh we're sorry we're hurting you let's be open about why you're being hurt and and let's not assume that your experience is just like mine and 
today, if you were to ask me that same question, I would, I would be much less optimistic that, that if enough people raise their hand that, that an institution can acknowledge like really vulnerably the hurt and pain it's caused. And you see this in Mormonism, right? You see that the more people who raise their hand, the more comments we get from leaders that we're not going to apologize, give Joseph a break. Yeah, they're going to dig and, in. And you get a few good, right? They're going right? to dig in. You get a few in. good yeah. talks mixed in. Yeah. And so you get a few good talks mixed in, but the general attitude in an institution when people are raising their hands to unhealthiness is to say nothing or to say what is needed to keep the folks who are on the inside appeased and to keep them moving forward. And, and it's a struggle like that, that hurts. And, and I, like, I, I'm totally understanding Jack that if I'm, if I need the church to fix itself, I'm fighting a lost cause. Yeah. Um, at the same time, I deeply believe that for someone to move through this development, somebody has to be a mentor just ahead of them, validate that what they're experiencing is growth, show them how outside of their paradigm, the rest of the world sees it as growth to acknowledge their pain and hurt, but also start to give them tools and resources to move into something deeper. And I think there need to be mentors at every way station along the way, which means there's going to be some mentors who are going to stay at that place of validating the pain and hurt. Perhaps they do that intentionally or perhaps they're stuck in that spot themselves, but we shouldn't diminish the fact that people are still finding that useful in the place that they are at at that given moment. Yeah, I, I, I think I agree with, with all of those sentiments. I mean, I think one thing that we lack, not just our community, but, but any, not any religious community, but certainly, you know, as you say, high demand communities, but let's just talk about you know, ours for, for a second, you know, one of the things that we lack is, is anyone, uh, with authority who can validate, um, breaking out of, um, you know, our earlier shells. And I, and the the word that I was going to use is our juvenile shells, but that's sort of a pejorative word. I don't, I don't mean it that way, but, but it is sort of an earlier, it's an earlier stage and there's no one, there's no one who's um, there's no one who who has the good housekeeping stamp of approval, you know, within the community who can help who can help people break out of earlier. You know, I talk a lot about delusions in my podcast. Break out of earlier delusions. <laughs> I like that word, but it's you know it's this idea that the way we understood things previously turns out that as it as we gain experience, it doesn't really stand up to the pressure tests of life. And so we, we break out of that and we need someone to help us sometimes to, to think through that. Um, there's a, there's a counter, there's a counter thought though, that always is in the back of my mind. 
and and I always come back to this when I hear these sort of arguments, um, not not these sort of arguments, but these kind of observations. And it's, um, I, I'm I'm sort of the point in my life where I I just think that is the point of life, to break out of the shell and just kind of figure it out on your own, and and we want people to show us and to teach us or to validate. But that's not the point. The point is that there, there isn't going to be, at the end of the day, you're going to have to live with your own decisions and your own actions and your own conclusions. And that that's kind of the point. And, and, um, it's, on the one hand, it's scary to, when you realize that, I think. On the other hand, it's quite liberating, you know, because you, you then realize, oh, that's what the point is for everybody else too. And so anything anyone says to me, whether they have authority or not, or perceived authority, is just, it's just their individual experience, and that's all it is. And so I can, I can listen to it, and, and then you sort of get a sense of when people are speaking from, from what they have experienced and what they really know, because I think there's a real difference between what you know and what you believe, when they're speaking from experience and knowledge versus when they're parroting the party line or, you know, the, the safe, the safe rule of thumb, you know, there was an old adage. I remember when I first got out of grad school and I was working for this firm and there was an adage that said, no one ever got fired for hiring IBM and IBM, you know, it's this computer company. They didn't necessarily have the best stuff, but they were such a huge brand that no one would ever get fired for going to old reliable IBM and buying their services and their equipment and, because it's IBM. So you can tell when people are doing that, when they're just playing it safe, when they're kind of CYAing and parroting the party line um, versus when they're, when they're speaking from experience. But at the end of the day, I think everyone's got to own. I mean, I, I think that when we look for uh, the institution to validate us, or when we even look for a coach, we're looking for mirages and the more we look for those things and the more we try to get those things, the more fruitless that search is until the point where, you know, maybe the, you know, this, maybe this is what you mean about the dark night of the soul. You just get to the point where you think, well, there is, there's no one that can help me <laughs> at all. And then it seems like life sort of explodes to life. It seems like that is when you have these epiphanies and these realizations that, oh, turns out no one knows what's going on. No one has the answer. And that's, at, on the one hand, scary, but at the other time, uh, on the other hand, it's very liberating. And I, and I kind of, you know, if I had a goal, I, I just want to push people towards towards that awakening. I guess that's why my podcast is called Mormon Awakenings. I mean, I, I want people to sort of awaken to that uh personal responsibility, that personal ownership of their own, you know, their own whatever, their own beliefs, their own conduct, their own source of validation, their own, um, you know, expectations, whatever it is. Yeah. I, um, as you were, as you were talking there towards the end about coming to the realization that nobody has the answers that that has rang very true for me in that I and I've shared this with people and I I apologize for throwing out some names and, and in some way 
you know, they haven't said this personally, so don't assume this is their position or they would agree with it, but it's my position in the stage of development I'm at as I look at them. But I woke up one day and I looked around at all the scholars that forever I had like clung to their coattails with a death grip. Mm. Terrell Givens, Richard Bushman, Adam Miller, Sam Brown, Grant Hardy, uh, Patrick Mason, you name them. Yep. And I was holding their coattails with a death grip saying, if they can keep articulating positions that at least cause me to pause and to think, then maybe if I hold on long enough, this will all go back together. And what I came to the realization of, and again, this is only my own personal perspective, nothing they've ever said, but I now realize from my point of view they don't have any better answers than the rest of us. I mean, sure, they're quoting Shakespeare or they're using philosophy or they're, you know, saying that in spite of the evidence, they hold on to the fact that there's gold plates. But at the end of the day, when you sit down with these guys and you ask them the really hard questions, you walk away going, they don't have any better answer than, than what the rest of us are wrestling with. Yeah. And so you're right. It's someday like I have to claim it all myself and say, look, I'm going to own, I'm going to own my own life. I'm going to own my own beliefs. And I might choose to stay inside of a tribe and I might choose to outwardly perform the functions and rituals that that tribe requires me to to outwardly do in order to be part of that tribe. But at the same time, like there's no if, ands, or buts that I'm owning my own faith. I'm owning my own place in this tribe. And whether I stay or whether I go, even if they choose to remove me from the tribe, in some way that's still my own choice. That's my life and I'm going to walk my own walk. Um, I want to validate you for a moment. You're right in that I've never perceived you as telling anyone, like, grow up, mature, and just stay in the system. I, I've always seen you as validating, like, you've encouraged people to wake up, and whether they stay or whether they go matters little as long as they're growing up and they're growing into. And, and I, I want the listeners to be clear. I've never, ever perceived you as creating an argument where someone – should feel compelled to stay in Mormonism if Mormonism is hurting them, that instead you've called them to recognize the hurt, to wake up to it, to claim their own authority, and if that means they leave, then so be it. But I do want to say this idea of the tension being good, absolutely for most of us. For most of us, that tension eventually creates enough cognitive dissonance. It creates enough um, awareness within ourselves that something's just not right here, that we grow into something else. But I, I want to, again, always caveat, and, and I'll just use that 13-year-old for an example. You somewhat, you know, you kind of said like, yeah, I get it. Like in that moment, he's not there, but that tension hopefully calls him into growing into something else that ends up being beautiful later on. And, and I want to recognize that for some of these folks, and if I use the 13-year-old as an example, some of them not at that moment having the tools or resources 
to grow into something that's beautiful later take their lives thinking there's nothing they can do. They feel powerless within the system. They feel like, yeah, I have a testimony. I had a spiritual experience. God told me Mormonism was true, and yet Mormonism is telling me at my very core I'm not acceptable to God. And so some of these people take their lives, and they don't end with growth. They don't end with beauty. And, and And it also goes back to another thing you said, which is for the sake of this conversation, let's grant that we're eternal beings. And don't please don't be offended by this, but I can't do that. Like, I hope in that. Mm. But I also recognize that this life may be the only life any one of us have. And to have an institution impose beliefs that are invisible on somebody to the extent that that person takes their life early in possibly the only life they have comes off to me as, um, and I'm going to get emotional, um, deep, uh, deeply tragic. Yeah. And I don't think it's fair for us as Mormons or as Christians or as theists or as believers in something bigger than us, because there's other ways to look at the world, to assume like if somebody takes their life, at the end of the day, it really isn't a big deal because we're eternal beings and we'll learn from that and we'll grow. Like, let's at least allow a space at the table that this may be the only life we have. And for a young kid to take their life because a institution that makes up 0.2% of the world imposes its invisible beliefs on somebody and makes them feel worthless is tragic. Well, I, yeah. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I'm not saying this isn't. Uh, t- tragic, or um, or that that the institution ought not change. I think the institution should change, and or or that you know somehow we should view in, in the extreme case that you laid out, um, you know, a suicide, some sort of t- tragic, immutable end, that we should view that as somehow all just great and everything's fine and no problem. I mean, that's sort of, that isn't recognizing, you know, for anyone to, to think that isn't recognizing that pain and evil and, you know, all these things are real and they are real. So I don't want to, I don't want to minimize that at all. Um, and, and I think if you have a view that, that this may, you know, I think there, look, no one knows for sure that this is, that there's, you know, life life beyond the grave i mean i i like to think that there's lots of evidence um in all sorts of you know branches of study that seems to show that there is you know there's all sorts of near-death studies there's been all sorts of studies in consciousness there's been all sorts of studies in you know you know it's not just it's not just lds it's not just christians it's not just you know the western world that believes this um, that you know the, the continuity of life beyond the grave, but but no one knows for sure, right? Because we're all alive, and no one's you know right. we don't know anyone who's gone to right. the other side for a few years and then come back. Uh, and personally, anyways, we've heard stories, but we don't know anyone personally like that. So so no one can say that say that for sure. Um, and you know, look again, I, I don't you know I think it's easy to. It's easy, it's easy for some people to be glib about this, and I don't want to come across as being glib that I think if if some 
a person really struggling to the point where they're going to take their lives is not a tragedy uh, because, you know, everything is you know, going to be just a wildflower flowered field in, in the eternities with bathed in light and no problem. I don't think that at all. I think that, that these things are tragic. H- having said that, you know, again, I, I, do, I do think that, you know, that, that we're, let's bifurcate the two roles. There's, there's the role of the onlooker who's the bystander, be it a, a family member or a, or a ward member or, or the church itself, watching, the, uh, and let's go back to your hypothetical, watching the phenomenon of someone just dying inside. Or, or maybe they're not watching it because they're not aware, but they, but they should be aware. You know, so they're either aware of it or they're not aware of it. And then, so what's that, what's that, group's, what's that group of bystanders' role, role? That's one discussion. And then for the individual, what 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 does the you know as the individual you know when I for each individual we are living with our own thoughts, with our own um, minds, our own spiritual connections, in as much as we feel them. And so, what can what what can we do as people as individuals to save ourselves? And you know. I, I am more obsessed with that part of life um, than not to say that the, that the well it's confusing because you know the bystanders you know we're all bystanders too and that's an important role for all of us but but each individual's happiness I deeply believe or joy or sense of or sense of um, worth or or confidence that's something that really comes from within and you can be told that and you can try to learn it as an abstraction and you can rely on what other people are saying about you or how they view you but at the end of the day or at the end of life you either it's it's only what's going on between your own two ears and what you, and what you think of yourself your situation your how you are that will ever be a source that will ever make you happy or not and and whatever the third party says or doesn't says that that just is that just can't be that that's not a lasting um source maybe it can be in a in a transition but it's not but it's not a lasting source right right and and I agree with like everything you said there yeah. um it's just there's you know there's general rules I think and there's exceptions to rules and, and I think perspective uh, – let me share maybe an example. So two of them. One is that if we go back into, let's say, Catholicism, early in Catholicism's history, if somebody disagreed with Catholicism, right? Like I want to own my own authority. I want to own my own life. I want to be able to step out of this tribe and – for anybody who spoke publicly about that journey and that growth, they were put, tied to a stake and set on fire. They were laid across a block of wood and their head was chopped off. So yeah. for some of us throughout times, you know, throughout history, it, it was impossible to leave the tribe in a healthy way. And to recognize, too, that in that time period, 
what made that institution change. And again, I get we can't force it to change. Like Bill Real is having probably very little effect on Mormonism. But if there's a thousand progressive voices, if there's 10,000 progressive voices, it does, while it's way slower than we like, and generally the results come after our lifetime, the, the, the voices do affect change. And so you look at Catholicism and you say, did Martin Luther and Tyndale and Wesley and all these other guys, did they have an effect? And I think it's inevitable once you look with hindsight back on history, you see the effect they had. Did Martin Luther King or Malcolm X, did they have an effect? And, and I think you look back and you say, absolutely, they did. So I agree, like if the individual is carrying out their descent to make the church or the institution change so that it's healthy for that individual, it's a lost cause. If that individual is fighting for change so that it's better in 20 years or 100 years or 500 years, I think there's a deep value in historical validation for what's going on. And then I want to share a second example, which I think will help us realize maybe how we take perspectives. When you look at the 1980s and the the gay pride parades that happened and you had these men who were who were wearing, you know, tight spandex underwear and uh, rainbow painted all over their, you know, 90% naked body and they're screaming and yelling and they're throwing, you know, flags up in the air and and there's this big scene they're making and and some of that still happens today. But we look at those people and the general population looks at that individual and they say, I cannot believe they're doing this. If they, if they want to get the world to change, this is not the way to do it. And you look at those individuals and you say, you know, why in the heck would they do that? And once I've moved through this development, at least to whatever stage I'm in, I can now look back and it's easy for me to see what's going on. These people were distanced. Their, their parents distanced themselves from them, their brother, their sister, their community, their, their employer. The moment these folks came out and said, hey, I'm gay, everyone around them emotionally abandoned them. And because they, they saw that who this person was at their core, again, as being something wrong with them. This person had this natural inclination to throw it back in everybody's face. Like, you've hurt me, and I'm throwing it back in your face, and so this is the way. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go about it being eccentric. I'm going to go about it emphasizing this to the nth degree, and I'm going to put it right in your face. And I think if we can take the perspective of understanding why people speak up and point to the tension and unhealthiness, even to the point that they're maybe in their own unhealthy way making us uncomfortable, if we can understand the reasons they're doing that, and again, in earlier stages, you and I both know it, you, you just can't do it. You can't. Yeah. But what they're doing is they're creating conversation, they're creating cognitive dissonance, they're creating tension and all of that begins to open up channels of conversation. It, it opens up channels of things being covered by the media. 
I think all of these things, we can debate their healthiness or unhealthiness, but I think as a whole, they contribute to what appears 100 years later looking in the rearview mirror as, in, to some extent, maybe what was necessary for that individual to be at some level of peace and what was necessary for us as a culture to move into something better. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I'm not sh- – you know, I, I think what you're – I think what you're saying, or maybe maybe presuming, although I don't want to I don't want to guess on what you're presuming, but I think I think you're saying that that my view would be that you know being demonstrative is is unhealthy, or that being um, extremely vocal uh, is is an unhealthy act, and people should just you know shut up and meditate and, and, you know, and, you know, don't worry what anyone else is doing. And and I'm not, look, I'm not, I'm not saying that because I do think that, you know, part of taking responsibility, you know, part of taking ownership for yourself is for, for many people means, you know, standing up and saying, look, this is who I am. And if you don't like it, you can, you know, tough. And I think that's what a lot of these earlier demonstrations were. You know, they're they're you know they're 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 abandoned, they're repressed, and they come out and they say, "This is this is what I am. If you don't like it, I don't care. I'm gonna I'm gonna revel in it." And and I think that's a, I think that's a healthy form of of taking responsibility. I think also you know. Driving for change, you know, driving to change an institution. You know, you talked about the the early stages of the Catholic Church, and you know, if you oppose the Catholic Church, you get burned at the stake or get your head chopped off. And you know, so Martin Luther, as an example, trying to change that institution or taking steps. You know, Tyndale. These are all these are all good things. Um, having said all that. If if any of the people were basing their happiness or their joy on on a rubber stamp, you know, eventually getting a rubber stamp from the Catholic Church, or eventually getting their parents to love them in spite of their gayness, I just think that you know that that expectation will just lead to disappointment. You know, and so so yeah, on the one hand, yeah, it makes you know if if you feel driven to to drive for change, I think that that's, that's noble and good. And it may even be part of, you know, taking, taking ownership for yourself. On the other hand, you know, if, if you're dependent on ultimately the church rubber stamping your life, you, you, you've kind of missed the whole point is my view, you know, and, and, you know, you've got to keep those two things separate or you'll, or you'll go insane. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. There's a guy that I read, you know, just along this point is, there's a, there's a guy that I like to quote and I've read a lot of, Eckhart Tolle. And he talks about people who address the symptoms. And, and in, this, in this case, it's the sufferings. It's the suffering and the pain associated with unenlightened, unaware people. He said there are people who devote their lives to that. Think of Mother Teresa. She devotes her life to caring for, well, her, she's devoting her life to caring for lepers. That's different. But there are people who, who devote their lives to cleaning up the messes 
that other people make or cleaning up the pain that other people produced or even inflict upon themselves because of their own lack of enlightenment, their own immaturity, their own lack of awareness. And he says, that's a, you know, this is what Tole says. And I'm, I agree with what he says. He says, that's a noble endeavor, but you're, you're really just treating the symptoms and what, what really needs to happen is for people to become more aware and more enlightened so that they stop producing all this pain. And if you, if you focus on the world where people are living at a lower frequency, it will just ruin you as a person. It's hard to live in that world. And, and I guess, you know, the analogy here is I think it's great to, to drive for change. I think it's great to, you know, point out, you know, sometimes point out the, the, the mistakes that other people have made. On the other hand, I do think it gets the, I, I do think people are, are still locked in this, this, when they're doing that, they're still locked in this cycle of really demanding acceptance from, from the authority figures, from the institution, from whatever it is that they're rebelling against. You know, it's one thing to, to go out and say, I don't care what anyone thinks about me. I'm going to be me. But it's quite another thing to say, I don't care what anyone else thinks about me. I'm going to be me, demonstrably so. But I want you to validate my decision to do that. Right? Because if you're doing the latter, if you're still requiring the validation or the, the rubber stamp or whatever it is, you, you've not, you're not, you haven't broken out of the shell. And so, you know, mentally, I think we just got to keep those two things different, separate rather. And wh- when I read people on, on Facebook or, you know, emails or whatever it is, getting hysterical about, um, and I'm using extreme language here just to make a point, but getting hysterical that the church doesn't do A, B, C, D, E, and they're never going to be happy until the church starts. I, I think that, that they're, they're conflating those two things and they're just causing, they're choosing misery. They're choosing suffering, right? I mean, it's one thing to say, and I can sit, I think we can all sit back here objectively and say the church does this well. The church doesn't do that very well. It does, you know, other things terribly. It does some things wonderfully and we ought to do better in the areas that we're not doing very well at. And, you know, we can, I think we can all agree on those sort of things, but some, but, but what, but then there is a, there's a group of people who, um, and I think it's unhealthy. This is where I think the unhealthy comes with. They, they will, they will not be, they can find no peace for themselves and their own identity until some party outside of them, some third party, some authority figure validates their life. And, you know, not only do I think that that's impractical and unlikely, but I, I think thinking that way is you're just locked inside this cycle and, and you're, you really haven't broken out. You really haven't taken responsibility or ownership. Ownership is probably a better word, not responsibility. And it, it's hard to say that without being to sound critical. I'm not trying to criticize anyone. I just think that it's, you know, we talk about the straight and narrow path a lot in Christian life particularly in Mormon life. And for me, I was, you know, I was with a friend who's, who shares a lot of these same views that I do. And he think he says, I think that is the straight and narrow path getting to the point where you really don't need the, the, the perceived authority figure outside of yourself to validate you. And, th- and there's a difference from, you know, from b- being a reformer. There are a lot of people who have, who have been staunch reformers, who somehow don't get 
I mean, look at Gandhi. Gandhi, I think, is a good example. He's a staunch reformer, but he somehow somehow seemed to be above it all and not let it affect him personally. And that may not be an accurate depiction of Gandhi at all. But but I think you know what I right that he seemed he seemed comfortable in his own skin, comfortable in his own skin. And maybe the British would leave, and maybe they wouldn't. Maybe we're going to win at this, but what we're going to do is we're going to live by a certain set of principles, and that's what's going to make us happy. And and hopefully we'll get the results that we want, and maybe we will, maybe we won't. You know, there, there's someone who has an objective, has a path that he's walking, but his whole sense of identity and self-worth is not wrapped up in in the results. And that's that's a hard thing for people to get their heads around, particularly Western people, because we are psychotically obsessed with results and tracking and measuring and comparing and all, and all this sort of stuff. And I, I think that whole bit is a cancer in our, I mean, we could do a whole another podcast on that, but I guess, you know, if I were to, you know, I, that, that may not, that may not address what you were, what you were raising, but I think it, I think it is an, an, a, an important point. Right. So I feel like I need to at least say here. So the listener gets this, that, that I completely, Jack, understand where you're coming from, and like you're speaking truth every step of the way, but truth has like so many sides to it. And all I'm trying to do, I'm not, I know there's probably points in this podcast where it feels like I'm trying to poke holes in the truth that you're talking, that you're speaking to, but I, I'm really not. I simply want to say like, like Jack Nanique is saying something that holds true for a large chunk of human beings but that for other people, that truth is seen from a different angle. And, and so that the listener walks away seeing multiple perspectives, realizing that there are rules generally. There are, there are exceptions to the rules that, that for, you know, this percentage of the human population, this is actually healthy for them. Meanwhile, there might be a small minority section of the population that this is deeply tragic for. And the other thing I want to say too is, you're right, and I say this in the midst of there's a part of me that does it, but you're right that if you're fighting, if the only victory you're going to have in your life, the only way you're going to re- have some resolution, the only way you're going to feel any sense of peace is when you can raise your arms in victory that the institution has caved in to what you see as the healthy changes it needs to make. Even if we agree those are all the right changes you're just you're never going to be at peace. Yeah. You're never going to have reconciliation. You're never going to be beyond this point of being angry, frustrated and demanding change. So so somehow we have to move past that and I think that's what you do so well, Jack, is your podcast focuses on okay, it's there. You don't like it, but if but there's got to be something else besides just fighting it to change and only accepting it changing as as the win. Well, that, that's, that's nice for you to say. I hope, I hope, I hope sometimes that comes out. <laughs> and I don't think you're, it does. I don't, it comes out all the time. I don't think you're, yeah, I don't think you, I don't feel attacked by you at all. I think you're quite the opposite. And I, you know, I'm, I'm pondering, um, this, this notion, you know, that this works for most people, but not, but not for everybody. And, um, you know, I think, we're a little, maybe we're not really clear on what this is, you know, this works, for, you know, the, this, and this works for, um, but I think we sort of are. So, you know, it, can I add something too? Yeah. So 
what you're saying, what you're speaking to is that we as the individual need to come to a realization that ultimate victory is never going to happen, at least not in our lifetime, for the things we fight for. And that part of maturity and growth is being able to be comfortable in our own skin in the midst of not getting the victory that we're fighting for. Like, yeah, you can still fight for things to be healthier. You can still point out the unhealthiness. You can still raise your hand. But with the realization that whatever that victory is, is probably 500 years into the future, or at least after you take your last breath in mortality. I simply want to say at the very same time that you're asking the individual to come to that realization, I would want to insert the idea that the institution better understand just as well that if it doesn't be vulnerable, if it doesn't make healthy changes, then it cannot expect that people will continue to stay and that numbers won't go down. That if an institution is unhealthy and it's working to protect itself, that often if its number one motive is self-preservation, in the end it actually does itself great damage by not being real, by not addressing things, and that 500 years from now, there will be a victory for those who pointed to the unhealthiness if nobody addresses it. Yeah, you, um, well, c- a couple thoughts. One is um, I, don't think, I don't think I'm saying um, that y- you need to just resign yourself to no victories ever, and that's what you should expect. You know, I think I think we'll have victories and we'll have failures and you'll be able to make some progress if you're fighting for things that you think are really important and dear to you. I guess what I am saying, though, is the the outcomes and your source of inner peace and joy are are independent and you may get great outcomes and be miserable. You may completely transform the world exactly how you want it to be. Get everything you want. And you'll be, and there's a scenario where you're totally miserable because you've never learned how to be happy. Happy, and then there's an outcome too where you completely fail at every thing you've attempted, and but inside you're blissful, because I think the two pursuits are different. I think the pursuit of joy and happiness and peace is independent from exterior outcomes. I guess that's not, so. You you may be very successful, or you may be unsuccessful, or you may see results, or you may not. But but that should not you know you may be rich you may be poor but that's you know part of being at peace and having joy is learning that these outward successes or failures are independent from how one goes about being peaceful and joyful those are those are two different undertakings so I guess I you know I right. just want to make I, I just want to make that distinction and then the second thing is yeah, amen to that I think and thanks I think the second point is is a really interesting question and you know what what will happen to you know an institution that is unresponsive to what is becoming more obvious a growing percentage of its of its membership and i think people i think it's logical and it's um facile to say oh the, the institution will eventually die and that's a logical conclusion but i think what happens in fact is that institutions just adjust 
and they they don't adjust as fast as we want, but they adjust fast enough. And you know, you look at the Catholic Church, which has been around for two thousand years, and all, you know, talk about unresponsive and you know a purveyor of horrible of horribles. I mean, look you know look at the sins that the Catholic Church has committed, and it's gigantic and richer than ever. You know, even in my lifetime in New England, you know, it's kind of the epicenter of the whole pedophilia thing. It still dominates. So, you know, I'm I'm not as I'm not as pessimistic or not as you know or optimistic, depending on your point of view. But I I don't I don't foresee I don't foresee the church imploding as much as I just see. I think the church will change in ways that may be very dramatic. And if we look at our own history, I, I think we're saying the same yeah, thing. Yeah, I mean the church. Yeah. Let me just stop you. First. I'll let you, con- yeah, you go ahead. I'll let you continue, but let me just say really quick yeah. that I think we're saying the same thing. That we also know of institutions and companies and and other entities and groups that if they're not responsive, if they just maintain the status quo and push the narrative, regardless of the unhealthiness, they do die. They they do they do die. Or, the, or, or parts of them die and are lopped off, and it, you know, other parts are grafted in in their place. I mean, we, we right. our, our history, right. you know, our history is that, frankly, because we, you know, we were a polygamist, whiskey drinking, you know, gun shooting group of renegades in the late 1800s. Fast forward to the late 1900s, early 2000s. I mean, it, it doesn't even resemble its roots at all. I mean, I, I almost say and take for at, instance, at all. Yeah. Yeah. Take, for instance, the 78 revelation. Say Spencer W. Kimball and the brethren put it in stone. Like they just come out and are blatant that this will never change. Those of color will never have these these blessings. Nobody in 2017, at least not not anything more than a few racist people left in the world. Nobody signing up for Mormonism. No, that's exactly right. And it was and it was a practical and, consideration. I mean, they 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 can call right. it what and they so want. And so, hundred years from now, yeah, right. And a hundred years from now, one has to wonder, even with LGBT people being only a small percentage of the human population, that the that the world will come to grips. At least the developed world will come to grips with the science, with the psychology, with with the the human dynamic of all of that. And in a hundred years, will somebody join Mormonism if Mormonism's theology is homophobic? It, and, and my guess is no, they won't. I, I completely agree with you. I mean, it is it's a completely unsustainable position. It has it, and there's massive tension right, right. now. I mean, it's almost it's almost to the right. point of snapping right now. You know, it may take something a little more dramatic. You know, more isolation, more you know sanctions from people outside the church against it to to make that change. And it's, it's a tough nut to crack too. I mean, it's pretty easy logically to say, Oh, well, I guess, you know, blacks ought to have the priesthood. Okay. You know, we're, we're not jettisoning the, you know, the fundamental whole family structure, family proclamation, all of that sort of stuff. So it's a tougher nut to crack to, to, to open up um, in those areas. But, you know, there's no doubt that things are going to be completely different, not just, you know, uh, on that issue, but, you know, our whole understanding of how the spirit work, works, 
you know, consciousness, you know, awareness. There's all sorts of things that, you know, when I was a boy, it was, it was, you know, blacks couldn't have the priesthood and it was very rigid, um, narrative and, you know, it right. was a different church, and that's just in my life. And I think, you know, the, the, yeah. the rate of change in life in general is happening at a faster and faster pace. And so, uh, you, know, it, you know, 5, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, wh- wh- what's a church going to look like? It could look very different. Um, and so I'm, you know, w- w- there's one thing about Mormonism that I think is really interesting. And there's a guy, Randall Bowen, who wrote this in his blog post. Uh, in his blog, rather, he, he has a blog, The Church is True. But he said, what's great about Mormonism is it's it's got this totally elastic uh, canon and do- set of doctrines. It doesn't feel like that when you're living day to day. It's kind of like watching the grass grow or the paint dry. But compared to most religions, I mean, we are quick to kind of chuck wholesale and bring in new things and, you know, m- you know mix it up. Certainly, generation, you know, but intergenerationally, there's massive change. So I think that's really what's kind of cool about about the church is I think people are, you know, most people are trying pretty hard to do the, what's right, and it's it's had a history of just booting wholesale things that don't work. I mean, the the, the whole polygamy thing. I don't think people understand how just shockingly dramatic just chucking that was. That was gigantic. Right. And and the the blacks right. and the priesthood was a le- was less dramatic because that was that was so obviously racist. But that was still kind of a big deal because we had invented all this kooky doctrine around why justifying that <laughs> you know this whole children of Cain thing. I mean, right. it's unbelievable the kind of stuff that we thought up. So the stu- you know, you look ahead 20 years, I have no doubt in my mind that you know, we're going to be chucking things and grafting things in and you know, getting closer and closer and closer to what is, to, you know, the, the truth, to reality of how the world and the universe and, you know, and you said earlier, maybe maybe this is the only life we have. You know, w- we sort of take that ter- sort of issue on a, met, you know, on faith right now and hopefully we'll get closer and closer to just knowing the reality of that. It would be nice to know, in fact, and I think we I think we can know, in fact, you know, whether whether you know, our beings exist beyond the grave. And, you know, I think we'll get closer and closer to the reality of deeper questions like the, how does the spirit work? How does prayer really work? You know, what are the biomechanics or the quantum mechanic aspects of it? <clears throat> we haven't, we don't talk about any of that stuff right now in our church. It's, it just seems alien, but, but in 15, 20 years with all the technology advances in sciences, there's no doubt we're going to be grappling with all these sort of things. And I think it'll be interesting. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I completely agree that Mormonism, like you say, Mormonism today is not the Mormonism of 20 years ago. No. Bruce R. McConkie and, and, and his father-in-law, to a large extent, were were very much responsible for laying out a very rigid, uh, speculative Mormonism. And today the church has essentially abandoned all of that speculative theology, which, by the way, made Mormonism interesting, and, and I think there's a, there's a podcast yet to be done. Happy to engage you with this maybe sometime in the future, but that Mormonism, that the, the membership doesn't even realize it yet, 
but that Mormonism has lost about 80% of what made it interesting, that it's no longer going to talk about those things. Because not only were they interesting, they were also, I don't want to say demonstrably false, but that reason and logic worked very harshly against them. Yeah. And, and so Mormonism is turning into an entity that just talks about fluffy stuff like goodness and service and kindness and be good to your neighbor. And, and not that they're, those are really, those are the most important things, but they're also not the things that generally work within, um, a, a culture to bind people together. It's, it is the quirkiness. It is the dramatic truth claims. It is the, Miracle stories and the spiritual appearances of various people and having answers to questions that nobody else in the world has that same answer to that do that. And I, and I would suggest that we are strongly backing away from all those things in most members. It, it's happened so quick and with little conversation about it that very few members realize just how different the Mormonism in the very here and now is from the 1985 when when Elder McConkie gave his last conference address. I mean, you hit it right on the nail right on the head. There are all these things, uh, this massive narrative, all these events that our own essays published at LDS.org um, take pains to distance ourselves from, and and that's yeah. just in the last. 20, and it has happened rapidly, and you, you know you wonder. I, you know you wonder why people. You know what is the story that's convincing people that, you know, the Mormon Church is a good home for them that we tell right now. I don't think we really. I think it's in flux, um, and it's being rewritten. And I'm not quite sure who's in charge of it. Probably nobody. But you know, you know, th- there's a new. There's a whole, going to be a whole bunch of new reasons why people are going to take refuge in the Mormon Church or not, um, and and it'll be interesting to see you know what those things are. We we could do a lot of podcasts about what they should be <laughs> because you know I don't you know you know it's, it kind of goes to the fundamental question of why are people really going to church? I really don't think people are attending church because. Because they may have a view about first vision and a view about some of these things, but that's not why they're going to church. They're going to church because, you know, they have a relationship with Sister Jones and they've been home teaching her for a long time and they know that she needs them or or they go because they're Sister Jones and they know that some person's going to help them out and they need that person. It's all these relationship things at the ward level. I mean, that's where my sympathy really goes out to people who are struggling. I think it's because they're stuck in wards that are not kind, judgmental, ignorant. You know, there's no one there to empathize with them. I think that really is can be a horrible experience. And But if you have a good ward, it almost doesn't matter what's going on in Salt, Le- Salt, Lake, Salt Lake or what the doctrine is. You just, you know, you feel love there and people are taking care of you and, they're trying to be nice and good and, you know, gives your kids some structure and some stuff to do. And and maybe we don't think about the deeper things all that much day to day. But it'll be interesting to see, no, I think you know, you how it. do we, how do, you know, our missionary force right now, we could do another whole podcast on this. But we've got, we have a bunch of 18-year-olds running around who know nothing about anything. 
I mean, how are they able to convince anybody of anything? And it's a looser story. And, you know, I'm, I think these are some issues that, that the church is facing. I want to just say something to that because you just like put a light bulb moment in my head. You're right. Like our, our youth are not growing up with any, with any semblance of the uniqueness that the Latter-day Saint grew up with 20 years ago. And they're also being raised to realize like, oh, this didn't happen the way my parents were taught it happened. And our history is messy, and the the amount of claims that we were able to make with certainty um, 20 years ago, that there are very few, maybe even just a, just a, I can list them on one hand, the, the number of unique claims that any Latter-day Saint youth can really be taught to express with certainty. And I, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see, like, what that means for people, when you go to somebody's house and you knock on their door and you're inviting them to leave their current faith and to make the commitments to Mormonism that it requires without being given, like, this is why you should do that and here's what makes us special. Yep. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's, a, it's a problem uh, right, right now. I mean, let, you know, it, you know, what, what, Again, I think it goes back to this fundamental question of why anybody really goes to church at all. And I think some of it is doctrinal. I think more of it's relational, participatory, you know. And, and you know, as I step back, this is a, a slightly different issue, but as I step back, I think one of the beauties of of the church, certainly being a living church, I mean, what, the claims about it being a living church, I think, are really beautiful and the most accurate you know the church continuously sheds its skin as you know as we've talked about a few minutes earlier every every generation and to me that's metaphorically beautiful because as you think about your own life you know you can't think the way you did when you were 12 when you're in your late 40s i mean you just can't and and every stage of life is one of kind of Breaking out of the old skin, breaking the old shells, breaking out of the cocoon. It doesn't happen just once. And it's, it's a little scary and reevaluating and thinking. And, you know, the church does this generation after generation. And, and we do that as humans. You know, to me, that's metaphorically very beautiful and really instructive and, and makes me feel hopeful. And it's made me feel less heretical too. It's made me feel more confident that it's okay to have you know, thoughts that are not, that do not comport with whatever I perceive as the party line, you know, because A, we, no one can really say what the party line is anyway. I mean, there's, you know, you could pull the 12 apostles on any given issue and you might get, 12, you know, eight different responses. So, so the party line is more, and, and, and more, more elusive than, that, than we think. I don't even think they want Right, and more than that, I don't think they even want to tell you what the what the party line. They don't even is. want to tell you it. I think they are hesitant to even declare. Yeah, it. they're he- and so in a way, that's that's you know that's that's nice. I mean, I, I view that as something that really makes it living and dynamic and and still kind of a, an alive thing. So I'm you know I'm more optimistic about the future um, than I think maybe some people are, but. 
Well, Bill, we're running out of time. We said we'd keep it to an hour. I really appreciate chatting with you. It's been great. Well, this was, yeah, it was incredible. So I appreciate the chance to sit and talk. And I hope, well, thanks. I, I have too. And I hope we have a chance to do it again. For those listening, this has been Bill Real of Mormon Discussion Podcasts. I hope you found something interesting here today. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or find me at Facebook at either Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Until next time.